Oh no, Las Vegas. Another list and another bottom of the list. This time it's Nevada's ranking 51 out of, yeah, 51 for the state of youth mental health. Luckily, we have professionals within our community who are working very hard to bust the status quo and make it all right for the kids. Today on CityCast Las Vegas, we welcome Dr. Michelle Paul. Dr. Paul has been in the city for decades, and now as executive director of UNLV's mental health clinic, The Practice, she's on the front lines. Dr. Paul breaks down for us where the breakdown has been happening, especially post-pandemic, and where we can look for hope on the horizon. It's Thursday, October 27th, 2022. I'm David Figler, and this is CityCast Las Vegas. Dr. Paul, welcome to CityCast Las Vegas. Uh, thank you, David. I, I appreciate having the opportunity to be here. You've been a mental health professional in Las Vegas since 1999. In your professional opinion, what's the general state of mental health in youth since the pandemic began here in Nevada? Are, are the kids going to be all right? How, how bad is it? It's not good. It wasn't good before the pandemic, and it's no better since the pandemic. And I think the pandemic put in relief for everyone the problems that were already there. Mm. The system was stressed that much more. And then we had children and families with very little in terms of supports through the pandemic because we were all at home and isolated and limited in our ability to provide those supports. You know, there are some folks that were okay right? The isolation did give them an opportunity to reconnect, enjoy some some of a break. But those communities where they benefited, particularly children, benefited from being able to be in the classroom, mm. being able to have free and reduced meals, being able to have other day, have daycare provided to them, that didn't have those resources. And so families were stretched thin in terms of being able to have access to those things. And then you have a group of people who suffered from a traumatic event in their lives. Some some kids have lost multiple family members. Over the pandemic. Over the pandemic, right. Are, are there some stories that you've been hearing from young people that really just sort of emphasize the, the kind of things that you're talking about, the traumatic impact? So we have a specialty clinic, for example, that works with children who are very anxious about going to school. And the pandemic caused them all the more difficulty getting back to school because they were given the opportunity to be away. And now we're coming, trying to get them back into the classroom. A lot of stress related to trying to learn during the pandemic internet learning for a lot of kids that requires independence and being able to focus and pace your own work while the work keeps going and you have to manage that time. I think a lot of kids found that to be a very steep hill to climb and we're feeling really demoralized coming out of the coming out of the pandemic and getting back into class. And in fact, one of my faculty supervisors said that because there's such a dearth of 
services for youth in the community, um, they're coming to his clinic because of school refusal issues, but their needs are really much more serious and their mental health distress is much higher than he's seen. And I would agree that the kids and the adults coming into our clinics are, the acuity is much greater than we saw before the pandemic. Interesting. So what is the age of the young people that you're seeing? How old is the youngest patient you've seen? Well, in our clinic, we see the full range, preschool all the way up to older adults. And then the average age of your non-adult patients? Oh, I would say the average age of our non-adult patients would probably be around mm, 10 to 12. And so I think that even resonates more with all the descriptions that you've given so far about, you know, the kind of things you're seeing and the kind of stories that you're hearing. I also like to look at statistics, right? And I know that Mm -hmm. they don't always tell the tale and you can't do one without the other. So let's look at the other. I've read that Nevada was ranked last uh, in a recent data set that looked at the ratio youth mental illness, the prevalence of it, and mental health care availability. Right. Um, there are other rankings out there, like the one data set from the Mental Health Institute, which I believe is a nonprofit, and and in that one, we're ranked ninth. Why is there such a huge disparity in those kind of numbers? So actually, those numbers are coming from the same group, Mental Health America. Mental Health America releases the same report each year, and... From 2022, back five years, Nevada ranked last in access to quality mental health care despite a great need for it. Yeah. This 2023 report came out, and now we're ninth for youth mental health. We were overall ranked last and overall ranked last for youth mental health in okay. the previous five years. So so now my, then, my cynicism, so what's up? So what's up? If you dive into that report, basically the report repeats itself multiple times that the data that they're pulling from is data that they tried to collect during the pandemic. And they were very limited in their ability to collect data during the pandemic. And as I mentioned earlier, everybody was isolated and separated. And they typically did in-person interviews for those five previous years. They couldn't do in-person interviews. So, you know, big asterisk, I think, I think a big asterisk. I don't know that we can say much about the 2023 data set. So where, where do you think we rightfully rank? We probably still rightfully rank at the bottom. Oh, the U.S. Department of Justice just released a report, and the report essentially confirms what uh, they and all of us have known for quite a while, which is Nevada has a big gap in services. So we over rely on inpatient emergency rooms, inpatient hospitalizations, and residential treatment facilities in state and out of state for our children with mental and behavioral disturbances. And so it, that middle space between weekly outpatient psychotherapy to inpatient, right? You have the continuum of care, that middle space of crisis stabilization and more intensive home-based services, or even intensive outpatient services 
are really missing. Yeah. And so we have to jump from weekly outpatient psychotherapy right into emergency rooms and inpatient settings to get kids services. You know, the U.S. Department of Justice has basically said that there's cause to believe that Nevada is violating these children's rights within the Americans with Disabilities Act. Yeah. And they look forward to helping us get out of the trouble spot we're in. Okay. Well, we'll take the government at their word that they're looking to help us and not Mm -hmm. run for the hills. I do want to talk about the community mental health clinic that um, Mm -hmm. you're the executive director of. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what the practice does and your recent expansion that was in the news. So the practice is a community mental health training clinic. It stands for Partnership for Research Assessment, Counseling, Therapy, and Innovative Clinical Education. I had no idea it was an acronym. It is an acronym. Well done. Well done. Yeah. Partnership and innovation being some of the key, you know, that's two key words. So we see people from the community seeking mental and behavioral health services. The graduate students working towards their master's and doctoral degrees are providing the services under expert faculty supervision. We're open year round and we run on a sliding scale. And one of our strategic objectives was to get ourselves off of campus to be more accessible to the community and get ourselves into the heart of Las Vegas in the medical district. Um, I prefer calling it the health district because UNLV is working in partnership with other groups like UMC to get it to get mental and behavioral and physical health all in one location. Right. So where is that specifically located, your clinic? So our satellite clinic is at the intersection of Rancho and Charleston, essentially. Like I've timed it. It's a seven-minute walk to the new medical education building and five-minute walk to UMC. And it's on some major bus lines, so that's good. Yep, exactly. And the parking is ample. Uh, You don't have to pay for a parking meter on campus and you know, get into the the walk around campus and try to find us. We have our main clinic still on campus. That's where our adult services are located, but our kids and families are being seen in the satellite clinic. Okay. And I want to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of it. Can you describe what does mental health care for youth actually look like? How, How is it different from, say, mental health for adults? And what specifics are you focused on? Okay. That's a really great question. So, When we're working with kids, we're going to work with their families. We're going to work with their caregivers in addition to just the kiddos. In fact, it's it's very unusual to have a child be able to come into therapy once a week and generalize what they learned in therapy the next day, much less the next week. Sure. (laughs) Right? So you need to empower. I tell my parents that I work with, I'm here to work myself out of a job. I'm here to give you the tools that you need in order to assist your child in learning what their emotions are, learning how to cope with stress, helping them understand the world around them, helping them to validate their feelings, but also set limits, give them the tools they need to develop into someone who can understand their emotions, make healthy choices, and also learn We also have a comprehensive psychological assessment and testing clinic where we can help identify where kids are struggling with learning disabilities so that we can then inform, in turn, inform teachers and school providers 
about the best way to help kids, you know, be successful in the classroom. Yeah. Are there even further challenges uh, when, say, treating foster kids? I'm hoping that our clinic can have more contact with those kids. So when we're talking about kids in foster care, they frequently have Medicaid as the service, you know, as the insurance that they have. So one of the things we're trying to do at my clinic is take advantage of a new law that allows psychology trainees properly supervised to have their services reimbursed. And so one of the problems that we haven't talked about is there are a dearth of Medicaid providers. A lot of mental health providers in the community have decided to just go strictly cash pay because there have been there are significant struggles getting credentialed and boarded with these providers, meaning, you know, it can take hundreds of days to get approved to be a provider for an insurance panel. And then to have claims denied, as it is, mental health is not reimbursed at great levels. Nobody goes into mental health care to make money hand over fist. It's just not one of those professions where you're going in, where you're going to get paid. So to have to have to pay back money is has been very frustrating for mental health providers in this community. And so many have decided that they're just not going to be providers. So our clinic would like to take advantage of of being able to see Medicaid populations. Part of our mission at UNLV, UNLV Practice, UNLV Health, which is the medical school's practice plan, we're here to serve the underserved. That said, um, currently my clinic runs on you know low cash pay. Our average our average session fee is ten dollars. But a lot of people pay our lowest fee, which is $5, which is great. But we'd like to be able to get some additional reimbursement for the services we provide because we feel strongly that we actually have really good outcomes and they get a lot of really good, diligent, attentive care at our clinic. So if we can get there, then I imagine we will start to see kids in the foster care system and be able to intervene and support those families. So Dr. Paul, where do we go from here? Is there maybe one fix that's bigger than others that this community needs to help the youth mental health crisis that seems to be looming? I think it's going to take a concerted effort on the part of community and state leaders to decide once and for all that they're going to pay for help, pay for this. They're going to pay for mental health resources and they're going to hold payers accountable And they're going to need to start to think outside of the box with regard to how they reimburse for services. So, for example, we used to have a a multidisciplinary treatment assessment team that would meet in our clinic for kids with fetal alcohol syndrome or autism spectrum disorders. And there are rules around getting reimbursed for multiple providers on the same day. But yet that is the most efficient way to work. You need multiple disciplines to get a really good thorough assessment. So that's an example of the paying system, the reimbursement system, the rates have to improve and the system has to change. So it's really about financing this and doing it in a way that is more primary prevention focused and willing to put the investment in. And mental health does matter. People are finally recognizing that. I feel like I've been in the Horton Here's a Who story for (laughs) 
way too long. We're here, we're here, we're here. And now we're finally being heard, but you have to give us, you have to give us the tools we need to be able to get ourselves out from the shadows and out from the margins and center us and listen to what we need and give it to us. Okay. Power to the people of Hoosville. Uh, <laughs> let, let them all be heard by the legislature and anyone else who is involved in that. Dr. Paul, what an interesting conversation. Again, thank you for all the work that you're doing, and we'll look forward to seeing the progress in our community moving up that list, not jumping from last to ninth, but at least getting up there. So thanks again for joining us on CityCast. Yeah, we can do it. We can do it. There are a lot of really great people that are working hard, and I'm very, very optimistic. I, I love that. And I was ending kind of more somber. So thank you for turning me around and, and a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> Dr. Michelle Paul, thanks so much for joining us on CityCast Las Vegas. Before you go, some tidbits for the proverbial water cooler. So the murder of journalist Jeff Gehrman hit a new phase with defendant Rob Tellis's arraignment yesterday. The DA announced they won't be seeking the death penalty. Some eyebrows got raised since this is such a high-profile case. Wasn't it a given? But as it turns out, even death row-heavy Nevada has limited eligibility factors. And in a case like this, those factors make seeking the ultimate punishment difficult and even vulnerable to push back from the courts. In any event, life without the possibility of parole is still available as the maximum penalty. And if county election officials didn't already have enough challenges, here's another one. They're being overwhelmed with record requests by election deniers. These folks are supposedly looking for evidence of election fraud, but want confidential information on voters and poll workers. It's gotten bad enough that Clark and Washoe counties have temporarily suspended the requests. On the other hand, Nevada has some of the most liberal, strongly enforced public records laws in the country. Could be a real showdown. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Did you learn something new about mental health in our city? Feeling inspired by Dr. Paul's work? Well, go tell a friend about this episode. Then make sure you're both following the podcast and also subscribe to our amazing morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Talk soon.